You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs for the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And I have Dr. Cheryl Burdett, a naturopathic doctor, MD. Um, she's the director of education and the naturopathic residency program at Progressive Medical. And she's been in private practice since 2001. Um, so Cheryl, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell me what, what, the, what area of medicine is your focus or are you more, um, I know you're into integrative medicine and nutrition yeah. biochemistry, but is there a particular type of person that uh, you help or do you help people with all kinds of conditions? Yeah, so I think the nature of being in Georgia, where there's not a lot of integrative medicine, means that you tend to see a little bit of, of everything. However, I would say that my focus, while not in a particular condition area, uh, would probably be, like you said, in nutritional biochemistry and uh, particularly functional uh, medicine and laboratory testing. I've worked in the lab industry for a couple decades and um, am co-founder of Dunwoody Labs, and uh, which is a functional laboratory. So I've looked at lots of testing data over the years and really looking for those patterns that help to understand um, conditions that maybe have been missed or um, misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed or um, just not even realized. Oh, so what are some of the top conditions that you've uh, worked on? Yeah, so uh, so I'm going to back it up for a second and say and start with more of a symptom presentation. So very common to see people that, for example, just have their quality of life robbed from them because they're experiencing some level of fatigue, just not quite feeling like themselves all the way to, to being so debilitated they can't get out of bed anymore. However, uh, fatigue could literally be thousands of different things. And so by being able to jump in with some laboratory testing and especially looking at it more from a functional medicine angle uh, really helps to understand why someone's having a particular fatigue or fatigue type. And that really ends up being the answer for overall resolution. However, outside of that, um, do a lot of work in terms of uh, chronic infection, Lyme, mold disease, uh, hormones, looking at thyroid appropriately, adrenals, uh, reproductive hormones. Um, those are probably some of my big areas of interest. So, yeah, going back to fatigue, what um, you know, what what does your approach look like? Like, what what kind of blood work do you get done, and what kind of testing, and you know, yeah. there are different main types of uh, things that cause fatigue. Yeah. So I started a lab. So I. 
obviously in general, think the laboratory testing is important. However, nothing comes before the patient themselves. And so uh, even with good laboratory diagnostics, uh, we I would still say that 95% of your information comes from a, a good solid history. So the first thing that patients want to look for and want and should be experiencing um, should be someone who's doing a thorough history. And that should really, especially with a chronic condition, be more in that 30, 45 minute, even an hour range to really understand uh, how, what they've experienced and where they're at already. Because some of those common questions can really help to then determine the next step of what testing would be most appropriate. So, for example, if someone uh, tells me they have fatigue, uh, but yet their fatigue is better with exercise or their fatigue is worse with exercise. So we see both those patterns. Some people get a burst of energy when they do a bit of exercise and some people don't. They just feel worse from that. That puts me in two different directions. Uh, the better from exercise tends to be someone who's having some level of thyroid dysfunction because exercise actually takes one of our less active thyroid hormones and converts it into a more active thyroid hormone, uh, meaning that that person feels better. The person that feels worse with more exercise, that points me in a different direction in terms of testing. Now I'm thinking about their adrenals. And adrenals are little glands that sit on top of the kidneys. They make adrenaline. They make our get up and go hormones that make us feel good. But if adrenals are exhausted, if we've just been under stress for too long, they don't respond to stress appropriately. And exercise is actually a form of stress on the body, a good form of stress. But what should happen is adrenals should kick in, make some adrenaline to deal with that, make some epinephrine, that runner's high. And, 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 then, and so people should feel good from that. If they don't, it's often an indicative of adrenal fatigue. Uh, another pattern is I went from feeling great to all of a sudden one day now I feel lousy. That tends to put me in a different direction, infectious disease, because uh, if someone's overall been healthy and then that pattern just changes overnight, that tends to be less a slow wear and tear on the body and something more um, so something more acute that happened. And that usually points you in the direction of some type of infection, which makes you think Lyme disease, viral infection, or maybe even um, something happening in the gut, like bacterial, like a bacterial dysbiosis. So you do an initial, you know, long questionnaire, you probably do a long first visit, but then what's the follow-up look like? I mean, with, with traditional medicine, it's like, here, go take a pill and have a nice life, <laughs> you know, and if you're, if you're dying, come back. But I mean, like, how do you do it differently? Yeah. So collect a lot of information from the patient. Like you said, a good thorough, um, have them fill out a good thorough assessment. Ours is about 15 pages because we really want to get to know our patients at Progressive Medical. Uh, then from there, uh, they come in for a first visit that's typically an hour and an hour and a half. We go through that. We do a complete physical exam. We look at any previous lab work that they've had done, uh, decide if things need to be repeated or not. Uh, and then, you know, um, uh, sadly, the way it is in our country is that the insult to injury is that, that getting sick is also expensive. So we also spend some time diving in in terms of what insurance will cover, what would have to be cash. Uh, so they have a good thorough understanding not only of the, the, the clinical side of it, but even also the financial side so they can make a decision that's appropriate for them. Then. 
we actually um, don't begin treatment that very first day. We wait a couple days for some of the preliminary lab work to come back. And at that point, we begin to review the new lab work we have and put together an individualized treatment plan. So that visit will also be another 45 minutes, uh, the first part, and then the second part that's another 30 minutes because on that visit, we meet with one of our integrative physicians or naturopathic docs, and they put together a treatment plan that involves diet and lifestyle, that involves any kind of procedure. So at Progressive, we're very lucky because we have um, IVs and we have hyperbaric oxygen chambers and we have um, really just a whole host of therapies out there. I often say it's like uh, the Disneyland of integrative medicine because if you've read about it, we probably have it available there. So really able rather than to say, huh, I have this procedure, I'm going to fit it into this person's treatment plan. We're able to say, what is this person facing? Now, what would be the best match for that? So putting all that together, uh, then not only do they meet with one of the clinicians, but they're also going to spend another 30 minutes to 45 minutes uh, with a dietitian. And we do that uh, for the first sequence of three to five visits, because one of the most important things to getting well is understanding what you're eating, and that's not going to happen in one visit. So uh, we put we course people through a detox diet, and then we look at their personal food sensitivities and allergies. When we get that information, we move them over to that style of diet, and then we continue to work with them, helping them to understand what are best food choices, not only based on the research, but based on their individual blood work. So, okay. Um, so you put them on a treatment plan and then what's the follow-up look like? Do you have to chase the patients and, or do they willingly come back and report to you and you know, how often do they come back? Here and there you see people that don't come back because they feel better. And so they're, they're, they're up and at them and onward. Um, but uh, we, we, even when people uh, have a, a strong turnaround, even with the first visit, we encourage people to come back because that's when we can really dig in to explain why you need to continue a certain diet and certain exercise. So, um, so in general, we have people do a program of five visits over their first year. And this is so we can really get the diet and lifestyle counseling in there that we need to maintain a health and wellness. More typically, people will have a nice burst of improvement. Um, but, you know, it, when somebody's been chronically ill to say you're going to go to one visit and have a hundred percent improvement is unrealistic. So uh, taking what they've built upon understanding that someone's feeling better and then saying, okay, how can we fine tune and tweak? Which things do we need to finish out now? What's our next piece of the puzzle? Because unlike standard of care leads us to believe generally there's not one reason for a condition. It is not, one pill per ill kind of situation. The way I like to describe it is that there's typically, um, it, I would think of it more like a, a pie diagram and we're all, and there are pieces of that pie. And so in terms of the pieces of that pie, for most of us, it will be a number of different factors. It will be things like nutritional deficiencies, toxic body burden, too many free radicals, too much inflammation, too much mental, emotional stress. But 
there will always be some of those pieces of that pie that are bigger for you and smaller for you as a patient. So then understanding, okay, the way you present is a lot of inflammation that looks to be an infection. Let's work on dealing with that infection, get some of that infectious load under control. Now we go, all right, we know that contributed to certain deficiencies and now move to that part of the treatment where we're filling in deficiencies, et cetera, and so on. So really what we understand is that chronic conditions are multifactorial. However, it's impossible to do everything at once most of the time. So breaking that down into the pieces of the pie that are most relevant for that patient and then coursing them through steps that involve gut work and detox and nutritional building, learning techniques around mental emotional stress uh, really takes more than a single visit and it takes treatment plans at various times that address different levels of that. So if someone's had a condition for, I don't know, six months, what's your ballpark guess on how long it takes to fix versus someone that has a condition for 10 years? Yeah. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a, a great question and it's something that people definitely need to understand. And I could certainly be accused of in the past being overly optimistic. Like as a practitioner, we want people to get well as soon as possible. And so, you know, I would have a temptation to want to say, oh, three to six months and, and, and kind of deliver the best case scenario situation. But I think we have to be realistic for this. And so I think in general, um, and, and there's there's no absolute here, and some people respond more quickly, and some people take longer. But I think for every year you've been seriously chronically ill, you're probably looking at a good three months to kind of rebuild from there. So you can't expect to have a body and tissue and organs that have been under extreme stress and inflammation for a decade and all that to reverse in three months. When, when we think about this as patients, what we need to think about is you're rebuilding. You're, you are changing the memory of your immune system. You're changing what's happening on a cellular level. And just like we don't get to go to the gym once and have beautiful biceps, you don't get to change the environment of yourself for a day or two and change how it's functioning. So what we've got to realize is that it, it, it can take time. Most people will feel improvement fairly immediately, but to have ongoing continued improvement and to close that gap to be a, to 100% optimal or even 95% optimal, uh, probably realistically, you're thinking about three months for every year you've been chronically ill. Hmm. Not till you feel better, but to, to get up into that A plus range. But a lot of patients that have been chronically ill, are thinking, well, I've been at an F minus range for long enough, so I would love to just be at a C plus or a B minus, and that that can be achievable more quickly. So, you know, what does it look like then? Um, you know, three months for every year, but what does it look like over the first month, the second month, the third month? Is it the like a straight line? Is it just all over the place? Mm -hmm. Nothing happens for a while. I mean. And I know yeah. every case is different. I'm just asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> no, I think in general, when people are more chronically, <clears throat> excuse me, more chronically <clears throat> ill, they're more likely to feel something a bit more quickly. And so, um, so <clears throat> I would say by the time people come back for their um, second or third visit, they've already had a 50 or 60 percent improvement. Uh, and then from there, you're generally having somebody come in every three months, assessing where there was improvement. 
and maintaining that part of their treatment and then the things that they weren't seeing improvement on tweaking that protocol. But this is an important point to patients. Don't think just because you've worked with a practitioner once and they tried something for your fatigue um, and, and maybe your fatigue gets a little better, but not a lot better. Don't think that that doesn't mean that they don't have something else to help you. And in fact, uh, the fact that you didn't respond to that first treatment might be one of their biggest aha moments they could have because now they've ruled that out as a reason. And so every time you go back for fine tuning, you're honing in on what's that next most likely reason for that fatigue or whatever symptom to be going on. So you mentioned the IV and hyperbaric oxygen. What what are some of the... Um the treatments that you have there in the office and what conditions do they line up to? Yeah. So we do chelation. We do high dose vitamin IVs like high dose vitamin C. Um, we do oxygen therapies. We do silver as an antimicrobial. Um, we do a lot of things, not only through the IV route, but what's called nebulized where you breathe things in, as you could probably imagine, or as listeners Matt would imagine, that can be really helpful for conditions of the lung, but it's also a route that absorbs nutrients pretty well. So if some Somebody has a damaged gut. It's another way that we can um, seek improvement. Um, we have, for example, hyperbaric oxygen chambers. And one of the things that we know is that when you perfuse the tissue with oxygen, cancer doesn't like that. Infections don't like that. But our own cells really thrive with that. The part called the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, uh, that's important for uh, rebuilding. So we can use that for fatigue that's resulting from infection, but also fatigue that's resulting from poor cellular health, like decreased mitochondrial function. Um, we have a combination of chiropractors on staff, acupuncture on staff for um, pain management and physical medicine approaches. Uh, we do um, really just a, a, a wide gamut. We have different um, we do colonics, allowing us to have some rectal delivery of uh, different medications and supplementation. Um, so a really thorough, different laser treatments, a really thorough setup in terms of patient care, saunas. So how do you decide them? Like, well, I'll ask a different question. What are some of the common modalities? What are some of the more unusual ones that patients are surprised they can use and, you know, Maybe talk a little bit about those, the more unusual ones that you've found in the effective. Yeah, I think that often the, the chronically ill patient responds very well to nutritional IVs. And I think what's surprising to them is that that's not something they have to do forever. Um, many people might think, oh, well, if I do a vitamin IV, uh, well, I'm just going to have to continue doing it that way in order to have ongoing improvement. And that's not actually what you see. Uh, we'll often do a package of IVs, maybe five to 10. And what happens is you flood the body with higher dose of nutrients. Even those six cells get better at what they're supposed to do. So a six cell, will, it, it, when it gets flooded with a nutrient, a six cell is not very good at even taking up the nutrient. But when you flood the body, now those nutrients, because of the amount, can more easily get into the cell begin to repair the cell and begin to even impair, impair, improve how the cell uptakes different uh, nutritional elements. So, for example, let's say somebody has a history of a gastrointestinal condition, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, colitis, and they haven't been able to absorb a lot of their nutrients very well. 
orally, five IVs of high-dose vitamin will still get delivered to the GI cells. And now even the GI cells, even the gut cells are healthier, which means they're better able to absorb more nutrients. So what we find is that unlike maybe a anti-inflammatory shot like cortisol, which you need more and more, I'm sorry, cortisol, which you need more and more and more of over time, vitamin therapies tend to be the opposite, um, needing less and less because they allow for tissue repair and healing. Okay, interesting. What what about the, the hyperbaric oxygen? You said it's uh, helpful for people with cancer, any type of cancer, certain types. I mean, what other conditions? Yeah. So, um, so uh, yes, cancer is one that that really dislikes an environment of high oxygen. Uh, other conditions are fatigue because it helps the mitochondria to make more of what's called ATP energy, the powerhouse of the cell. If you think back to ninth grade cell biology, um, autism tends to be favorable with hyperbaric oxygen. Um, also just cognitive decline in general because just more oxygen to the brain can be quite useful as well. Uh, some of the first work with hyperbaric oxygen was with stroke recovery for obvious reasons. In a stroke, what happens is an area of the body, um, the brain, uh, gets blocked and, 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 and creates an ischemic event or an event where there's no oxygen. That's what does the damage and causes symptoms. So the more you can you can perfuse oxygen into that tissue, the less damage that will be done and the faster recovery you can expect to see. Okay. And uh, is, what, what is chelation and um, what is silver therapy? What are some of the other ones? Yeah. So chelation is commonly done to remove heavy metals. And so heavy metals are things like mercury and lead and cadmium. And many people might think, well, I don't live in an old house, so I really wouldn't have exposure to things like that. Unfortunately, if you live on this planet, you probably have exposure. Um, it's just we, we have that we've contaminated our water and our fish and our air. And so many people will be exposed to those things more so than they think. Um, and it's postulated. And uh, so uh, Dr. Joe Pizzerno, who is a, was a professor of mine and has a number of New York Times bestsellers, does a lot of lecturing. He talks about how the onset of cardiovascular disease in the 50s is not necessarily because at age 50 or more at risk. He talks about because that's the time we've accumulated enough toxic body burden that it starts to affect things like your arteries and your blood pressure. And so you do see some um, work, um, particularly the TACT trial, that's one that was done by the government, the National Institute of Health, that showed with chelation there was positive cardiovascular benefit from that. So. Um, so uh, removing heavy metals it can be very useful in autoimmune conditions because they spike uh, and they really irritate the immune system. It can be a reason for overactive immune function. Uh, heavy metals also uh, can play a role in terms of more neurologic conditions because they like to store in fatty tissue and the brain is 80% fat. So a uh, big player there. And then also heavy metals and can be a big player for cardiovascular disease as well. But again, regardless of your condition, a piece of your puzzle, a piece of your pie could be some level of heavy metal toxicity. 
for one person, it could be 10% of what's going on. And for another person, it might be 90% of what's going on. And so that's where that laboratory assessment, looking at those levels of heavy metals can be quite useful. So when people come in, do you have them do like a gigantic battery of tests or, you know, for blood work at first, or do you look at only certain things? Um, so uh, I, I, we use the history to direct that. And um, yes, we tend to do a more thorough workup because most of our patients are more chronic. And so we really need that, the, that di those diagnostics to fast track what's going on in them. And some of the things that we'll do routinely is to one, look at your body's reaction to foods. So many people think, well, I'm not allergic to any foods I eat. I don't itch when I eat a food or I don't have gas or bloating when I eat a food, but that's only one way that the immune system reacts to foods. Uh, we look at five different ways that the immune system could be reacting to foods. And so those might not, those other ways might not be causing gas or bloating or cramping, but they could be contributing to depression or joint pain or autoimmunity. And so looking at the foods you eat to create the least inflammatory diet possible is something that will benefit almost everyone. From there, uh, we tend to look at measures of toxicity, like levels of free radicals, looking at your oxidative stress and looking at things like I mentioned, like heavy metals. We do a nice nutritional workup on patients, looking at their B12 levels and magnesium levels and vitamin D and some of the key nutrients so that we know that we have a good, strong nutritional foundation. And then uh, we will look at hormones. So looking at thyroid, reproductive hormones, and your adrenal levels, because all of those are critical for really building up the person. Whether or not you're treating Lyme disease or hot flashes, if those things aren't in check, uh, then the system won't be strong enough to either prevent a reoccurrence or to keep symptoms away more naturally. Well, what about um, when you say look at people's food, do you have them do like a food log over time? Like how do you address the food part of it? Yeah. So we have them, we take a detailed dietary history um, um, as we get started with the patient. And then not only a detailed diet history, uh, but that the, the first time when they come in, we begin to work with them with a detox diet, taking out common problem areas of the diet, like wheat and dairy and too much caffeine, too much alcohol, and really just a nice clean diet. Then from there, um, we look, we measure their blood. And so we look at five ways the immune system can react uh, to food. So then once they get done with the detox diet, their next phase of diet intervention is to say, okay, now what is your body reacting to? Let's take those foods out, um, continuing to do a diet of that style, and then folding in any other nuances, like first start with the individual, but then maybe we know you have diabetes and there's fabulous research with the Mediterranean diet and diabetes, or maybe we know that um, you had a occurrence of cancer, you're in remission right now. Well, we know ketogenic diet can be very favorable there. So taking what we know from the research and marrying that with what we know from the individual and putting that together so that you can have the most specific dietary approach possible. We use a test from Dunwoody Labs to do that because that's the only test out there that looks at five different ways your immune system reacts to foods. Oh, really? Okay. And what are the five ways again? Just as a quick recap. Yeah. So IgE or your allergies. Then there's a marker that tells you if you're tolerant to your allergies. 
That's called IgG4. Then um, IgG1, 2, and 3, or total IgG, tell you if you're sensitive to foods. And sensitive is not an allergy. You don't immediately itch or you don't immediately um, have uh, issues like shortness of breath. You, you, the sensitivities happen three to 72 hours later, and they just generally don't make you feel good. Whatever your weak spot is, that's where that inflammation tends to create more problem. So sensitivities aren't just symptoms like sneezing or itching. Sensitivities are take whatever your condition is, and it can amplify that. So whether or not, again, it's joint pain or depression, sensitivities can make um, all of those things worse. Uh, we then look at a marker called complement. It's just another part of the immune system. And complement really amplifies those sensitivities. It can make them even a thousandfold worse than they would be on their own with just IgG. So looking at those multiple immune markers really helps you to figure out how important a single food is for that patient. And finally, we look at IgA. That has more of a gut-derived um, um, starting point orientation. Uh, but um, but uh, it can create some systemic inflammation as well. So what we know is that IgE or allergy testing only captures 50% of the population that's having a reaction to food. So by looking at these other immune markers, we can really complete that story. Hmm. Um, okay. And then what, what about people that are on prescription medication? Do you look at you know, how the drugs interact or maybe one of the drugs could be depleting one of their, uh, you know, like metformin depleting B12 and that causing an imbalance over time. I mean, you look at that and how do you address it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's a great example uh, because, yes, um, uh, metformin does deplete a number of B vitamins. B12 is one. Uh, B6 is another. And so here is kind of some of the limitations with just a standard of care approach. For example, metformin lowers B vitamins, it lowers B6, but when B6 gets low, it causes your body to make this compound called xanthouric acid, xanthinurinate. That compound blocks the insulin from being able to bind to a receptor, perpetuating more insulin resistance. So here you are taking a drug to lower blood sugar to improve insulin resistance. It causes a B6 deficiency that creates an insulin dependence for another reason. This is why it's better to work in an integrative setting, setting that will think about, okay, we might need this medication right now, but what else is it doing to the body and how do I protect the patient? And how do I create a situation where we're able to back the medication down rather than just need more and more and more after time? Hmm, interesting. Okay. How long do people uh, stay a patient? Do they tend to stay with you for a long time? Or, you know, once they feel better, they're like, bye, see you later. No, our patients tend to stay with us long term because they got so much improvement and because they decide that this is a style of medicine they want. Now, that first year is often more intensive. Like I said, five visits the first year. And then after people are well-maintained, feeling better, then even just a once-a-year checkup, check-in to make sure they're on the right supplements for their body, to adjust any medications they're on, to make to engage in good preventative medicine to make sure they don't backslide. Um, so, um, so... Um, so yes, we have had patients, Progressive's been around for 20 years and we have patients that have been with us for 20 years. Um, but generally as people get better, uh, the, the number of visits are back down and it gets more to a maintenance routine kind of plan. That makes sense. 
What, what do people say when they come to you? Have they been to traditional doctors before and they're tired or frustrated or do they come to you right off the bat? Unfortunately, we don't get to generally see people when they're first getting started because um, it's just not what standard of care typically does. So, yes, you're right. Most people that come to us have seen three to seven doctors already. Uh, they're not getting the kind of response they would expect. So now they're looking for some other options and some other ideas. So we tend so that's another point that we tend to see some of the people that are sicker that have had the most difficulty in terms of getting well. And we see quite good results in, in, a, in a more difficult patient population. Um, okay. Um, any, you know, I know without revealing names, obviously, but any interesting or crazy or difficult or just surprising cases you've had and, and how you resolve them? Maybe a couple examples. Yeah, well, I think it's all, you know, you often see people just getting their life back. And so many times um, it's patients that have struggled for years and years and years. But one who comes to mind was a 14-year-old female who was experiencing so much pain that, that she was already on a number of pain meds and using a cane to walk. Her mom was a pediatrician at a local medical school and hospital, Emory, and um, really good facility, but her mom thought there must be more options out there. And when she, when she asked the docs at Emory about what the next options would be, they said, yes, there are more options, and those options will be more pain pills, and then eventually not a cane, but a wheelchair. So she wasn't really satisfied with that as an answer for her daughter, and she brought her to us. And this is an example of where we looked at some of those ways that the body reacts to foods. And she wasn't having an allergy, but she was having a sensitivity to gluten. And as we got her off the gluten, and many of you listening are thinking, well, yeah, but how many 14-year-olds are going to quit eating pizza and bagels and whatnot? But when mm -hmm. it's the cause of horrible pain, you'd be surprised how motivated people can be from age 14 to 94. So I never like to count somebody out. I think it's often just a matter of education for people to make some of these lifestyle changes. And so as she got off of gluten, um, she began to feel much better. And I now say she walks around like a normal teenager, which is rather than with a cane, with both hands on the cell phone, texting as she goes. So um, <laughs> always nice to see something like that. Um, you, you might, some of you, some of you parents might be rolling your eyes at the cell phone part, but you would have to admit that you'd rather see your kid doing that than on a cane. Uh, so, yeah, uh, yeah. so, uh, and, but that's not an uncommon result. We work with people every day that, that say, you know, I was getting nowhere and that this is the first time I feel better and have hope. I have, I have my life back. So, um, patients who are, hearing voices in her head who have been or who have been depressed for years and seen no real change with therapy and medication. Um, these kind of cases where nobody's been able to find um, a reason or a rationale um, really seeing improvement there. Another one that always makes me uh, chuckle is, uh, is uh, how many people have gotten pregnant by coming to Progressive. I don't think that this is because huh. of anything that they've uh, encountered on a toilet seat or whatnot. No, I, obviously, I say that tongue in cheek. Uh, but because of it, and then you'll hear them come running down the halls towards you, you got me pregnant. And I'm thinking, well, 
not exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but, uh, you know, going through all kinds of expensive treatments and fertility options. And then it's amazing what some good diet and lifestyle and nutritional advice can do, really getting people over that hurdle to get to that end result they're looking for. Yeah, that's great. Um, <clears throat> so, well, traditional medicine, I mean, I've heard when they don't know the reason for a problem they call it like idiopathic you now, unknown. Um, mm -hmm. How often do you think that happens in traditional medicine versus like your clinic? You know, I'd, I'm sure the situations where you just couldn't figure out how to help somebody, but does that happen often or is it pretty rare? Uh, you know, there will always be patients that we need to learn that next thing for, that we need to have that next discovery for. But I think idiopathic is another way of saying incomplete workup. So a good example of this is um, something called irritable bowel syndrome is referred to as idiopathic. We don't know why it happens. Yet the research says that 86% of patients with irritable bowel syndrome have a particular bacteria that control groups or normals don't have. So here we are having distress in the gut. Here we are having more symptoms in the gut. And 86% of those people have a bacteria in the gut that other people don't have. It seems to make some sense that you'd get rid of that bacteria. And so you can measure it. You can see it. Um, we, and we'll do what's called a complete digestive stool analysis to find that. And sometimes people will say to me, oh, I did that in the hospital. Yes, but the thing that gets done in the hospital looks at about three bugs or six bugs, whereas the complete digestive stool analysis is looking more at like 50,000 different species of things that could be there. And so oh, wow. idiopathic can often mean you just didn't look for it. Um, you know, another big deal is that that test will look for parasites. And what will often be said is, I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone who gets a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. And when you dig into the history, you find out they had food poisoning right before that. They had a trip to Haiti for missionary work right before that. And then you say, well, did anybody look for a parasite? And they'll go, yeah, they did that in the hospital. Well, that looks for about three, you know, just a handful of parasites because they say you can't get parasites in the U.S. Well, Look at where that apple you're eating came from or that tomato you came from. Food travels, pet travel, people travel. This idea that we don't have parasites here is, uh, is a very dated idea. And sure, you'll never have a parasite if you don't look for one. But that's a good example of what, what I would call idiopathic. It just means people didn't continue to look and figure out what the root cause was. So is it pretty rare that you can't? help someone or at least make them, you know, from an F to a, a C, let's say, if not an A plus. Yeah. So I think you can expect to make that jump from, and I'll even go ahead and give you a C plus from an F to a C plus within a visit or two. And then from there, we are moving you up to that B, B plus, getting you to that A level um, over the next year. And then that, that's the thing. You got to continue to do some work to continue to stay well. If you go right back to your bad habits and right back to uh, poor diet and lifestyle, you can expect those symptoms to creep back again. Um, unfortunately, sometimes even with maintaining, uh, things can happen. A big period of stress 
um, some food poisoning, a big cold or flu that starts inflammation again. So that's another important reason to come in even when well, because we can train patients what to do at the first sign of seeing a flare of their symptoms return. And the first thing to do is not sit and wait for it to get horrible. Uh, there are many things that we can coach people to do right at the beginning so they can go back to remission. You mentioned food poisoning a few times. What what are some general things that people can do to improve their, you know, diet and lifestyle, regardless of what's going on with them, or if they're just feeling a little eh? You know, yeah. I mean, not a medical advice, but just general advice. What, what yeah. So the thing about food poisoning is that many people are under the belief that that's a four, six hour, twelve hour deal. Um, and the reality is, is that can make the gut more leaky or permeable for even the next six to nine months. So there's a condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that makes people bloat, makes them fatigue, makes it hurt when you eat lots of foods. And this is another one where people will say, well, we don't really know what causes it. Well, as much as 80% of the time, the onset of that condition can be food poisoning. However, it doesn't show up till four or six months later. And so this is why people don't associate it. So even small things or what, or what are presumably small, something like a food poisoning, it's important to recognize that this that was an infection and we need to do things to make sure that that infection is completely eradicated because sometimes just because you're not symptomatic doesn't mean there aren't still low levels growing there. And so in that case, um, something like that with a food poisoning, I would be thinking about doing lots of antimicrobials. So if you're going to your pantry, that means um, taking big heads of garlic and maybe cutting off the top and roasting it and eating, um, you know, three to four cloves of garlic, even for the next uh, week or two, uh, using lots of oregano and rosemary and thyme, because those are excellent uh, antimicrobials that will kill bacteria, but also even viruses as well. Making sure after an event of food poisoning, like, okay, you were sick, you were throwing up, you had diarrhea, now you finally feel better, I'm going to eat an entire pizza, or I'm going to eat just some junk comfort food because I can finally eat, and this is the stuff I crave. That's the wrong time to do that. You need to really eat things that nourish the gut after that um, so that you aren't creating a low immune system environment that allows that bug to just continue to flare. Um, from there, some, some supplemental or natural interventions that I like. I always like I, berberines, and those come from botanicals like um, Oregon grape. And berberines are a nice natural antimicrobial. Uh, taking something like that with food poisoning and even for a few weeks after can make sure that you don't get set up of, of that ongoing. And then I like immunoglobulins. And immunoglobulins are good immune support for the gut and the immunoglobulins are what are very high in breast milk. So for example, just like we know breastfeeding is good for the gut and good for the gut immune system, um, we can we can get immunoglobulins from different sources. Uh, so in supplemental form, they're typically from an egg-based source or colostrum, and we can utilize those to build up the immune system of the gut to make sure there's not an ongoing chronic infection. Certainly probiotics are good healthy flora because that will always compete with the bad guys. So doing some things like that, realizing that even though the symptoms are gone, there could still be a bug there. And the more we make sure to fully eradicate that, the less problems we'll have moving forward. Okay. Makes sense. 
Well, excellent. Well, unfortunately, not everyone in the world can see you. So what, you know, for people in Atlanta, Georgia and surrounding, they can. Can you help people all over the U.S. or all over the world? Or what's the, the scope yeah. of your ability to help? Yeah. So at Progressive Medical, we have about um, uh, 25, 30 clinicians all practicing under one roof and all different styles of practitioners. But we all work together as a team. So coming to Atlanta, we have patients that drive in and fly in. But we also do some telemedicine or virtual consults as well. So yes, we have a lot of options for helping people. And um, in addition to getting you started, we have a large network of friends, friendly doctors around uh, the country and around the world. So we might uh, get you off to a good start and then say, you know what, there's some things you need more locally and make some suggestions of how to proceed from there. Okay. What's the best way for people to get in touch, you know, inquire about becoming a patient, ask questions? Um, progressivemedicalcenter.org or imp, if you want to just email us directly um, scheduling at progressivemedical.com um, and then uh, progressivemedical.com is the website that will have a link for scheduling or even just if you're not sure if you want to schedule yet info at progressivemedical.com um, so all of those are good ways to get in touch with us and start asking some preliminary questions and figuring out if it's a good fit for you. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Cheryl, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, yeah, there's a lot to uh, to look at when when someone's not feeling well. And unfortunately, I think most places don't look at even a tenth of the things you look at. So it's a good eye opener for me and I think a lot of listeners. Yeah. Well, I, I hope patients out there listening realize that uh, if you're not feeling better yet, there that's probably not just something you're stuck with. There's a reason for it. And working with the right clinic and the right practitioners, you can figure out what's the root cause of your illness. Very good. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.